0: A big part of what makes our show special is you, our listeners. That's why we'd like your help to plan for our future by filling out a short survey. Your responses will help us understand who's listening, what kind of content our audience is interested in, and how we can reach even more people. Go to cafe.com slash survey. That's cafe.com slash survey. From Cafe and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara.
1: If the city doesn't work the way we all dream it can, it'll probably be because it doesn't have soul or it won't be diverse. You know, it'll be some homogeneous group and then it just never really turns into something that we're really super proud of.
0: That's Mark Laurie. He's an old friend of mine. He's also a self-described serial entrepreneur who's had massive success at nearly every turn of his career thriving in the hyper-competitive world of e-commerce. Earlier this fall, he announced his biggest challenge yet, creating a new city from scratch that he hopes will set a global standard for urban living and become a blueprint for future generations. Mark joins me to discuss why he decided to embark on such an ambitious project, how he thinks about risk, and why the success of his new city, which he's named Talosa, will only succeed with Seoul at its center. That's coming up. Stay tuned.
2: living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today.
0: Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in a tweet from Greg Burgess, who asks, how long does it take to go to a grand jury and make a decision for a case like Steve Bannon's? And of course, that's something we've been talking about for many weeks now. Steve Bannon, who was pardoned by President Trump, former President Trump, for his role in a fraud in connection with building a wall on the southern border, is now in the crosshairs again, in my view, very legitimately, because he has openly defied a subpoena from the January 6th panel of the Congress. The committee itself, that panel itself, voted unanimously to make a referral for criminal contempt of Congress of Steve Bannon to the Justice Department, and then the House as a whole voted to refer him to the Justice Department as well. That was on October 21st, 13 days ago. You might have heard Joyce Vance and I discuss how quickly that could happen. My view is it could be any day. It's not a complicated case. It doesn't involve wire transfers. It doesn't involve international information. It doesn't involve a whole host of communications. It's a simple matter of the Justice Department, notably the D.C. U.S. attorney, and Merrick Garland, presumably will be heavily involved, to figure out whether or not it's fair and just to prosecute Steve Bannon for a misdemeanor violation because he defied the subpoena without having any basis for doing so. I don't think it requires other witnesses. It doesn't require going through any massive kinds of documentary information. I think it's a simple call. They're probably deliberating over it internally. There are very few precedents for this, but there was one back in the early eighties and it took about nine days from the time that the House of Representatives voted for a referral for criminal contempt of Congress to the time when the U.S. Attorney made the charge. So I think it'll be soon. This question comes in an email from Ellis, who asks, what are your thoughts on the recent John Eastman revelations? John Eastman, of course, is a figure who's come into sharp relief over the last number of days and weeks. As an outside lawyer for then-President Donald Trump, who was actively involved in the business of the January 6th insurrection. Most famously, a few weeks ago, it was reported, and we saw a copy of, a memo he wrote, that outlined the steps that Mike Pence, then the vice president, could take to basically turn the election to Donald Trump. But it's not only the case that he wrote that memo, which he, by the way, since then, has alternately distanced himself from and also embraced, which is a weird mix of reaction for him. But it's also come to light that on the actual day of the insurrection, after violence had occurred, after the Capitol had been invaded, he had an exchange with an attorney for Mike Pence. And it's pretty shocking. While Mike Pence, the sitting vice president, was actually being hidden and protected from a mob during the January 6th insurrection, there's an exchange back and forth between John Eastman and Greg Jacob, a Pence aide, in which Jacob describes the siege that's happening at the Capitol at that moment. How does John Eastman respond? Like this, quote, the siege, which he puts in quotes, the siege is because you, capital Y-O-U, you and your boss, meaning Mike Pence, did not do what was necessary to allow this to be aired in a public way so that the American people can see for themselves what happened, end quote. And then encourages him, even after the insurrection is underway, to turn the election to Donald Trump. So what do I think? There's been talk that the January 6th panel will subpoena John Eastman. I think that's an actual certainty. His testimony, I think, is vital to figuring out the advice he gave to Donald Trump the advice that came back from Donald Trump, what instructions he gave, what directions he gave, what was the mental state of the former president of the United States, and how close we came to actually having an election overturned. It's crucial to our understanding of who should be held accountable. It's crucial to our understanding of what happened that day. And also, as will be important in these debates in court, crucial to understanding what laws need to be changed or what laws need to be passed. Will Johnny Eastman come and testify? I don't know. Maybe he will find himself in the same position As Steve Bannon. Now, usually I answer questions during this portion of the show from regular people, but this week I got a question from someone you may know. It's my friend and frequent Stay Tuned guest, Ian Bremmer. He's been on Stay Tuned so much that I sometimes refer to him as my Regis Philbin. That's a reference to how many times Regis Philbin was on David Letterman's show. And Ian Bremmer, true to form, asks a very, very important substantive question Uh, that really goes to the heart of our democracy. And it's this. What's your new favorite Massachusetts origin prohibition era cocktail? (laughs) Ian Bremmer, though he's not a lawyer, understands the principle, never ask a question that you don't know the answer to. The reason he's asking the question is a couple of weeks ago, uh, Ian and I went out for a drink at a nice place off of Madison Square Park in Manhattan. And he laughed at the boring drink choice that I made and suggested I try what he had and I liked it very much. So if you're looking for a new cocktail, take it from Ian Bremmer. What you wanna try is something called a Ward 8, which according to liquor.com, is a turn of the 20th century concoction, one of Boston's major contributions to craft cocktails. It was created at the Locke Ober Cafe in Boston's 8th Ward. The ingredients, in case you're curious, two ounces rye whiskey, half ounce lemon juice, half ounce orange juice, two teaspoons of grenadine, and garnish with two or three speared cherries. Of course, I kept forgetting the name of the cocktail and kept referring to it as District 9 instead of Ward 8. District 9, of course, is not a cocktail. It's a 2009 sci-fi film. Thank you, Ian Bremmer, for asking such an important question. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. The secret to Mint Mobile's premium but affordable wireless plans is that they sell them totally online. Mint Mobile was one of the first to cut out the costs of retail and they then pass those savings on to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you could say goodbye to an overpriced monthly plan or unexpected fees. You can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. That includes unlimited talk and text plus high-speed 5G data. Signing up is super easy and painless, and you don't even need a new device when you do. To get this new customer offer and your new three month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash Preet. That's mintmobile.com Preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com Preet. $45 upfront payment required equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned. It's not every day that someone comes along with the smarts and determination to build a new city, but that's what entrepreneur Mark Lurie has set out to do with his latest Moonshot, an urban center that will test a novel model for society, implementing nothing short of what he intends as a reformed version of capitalism. Mark Lurie, welcome to the show. Thanks, Preet. Great to be here. So I have to begin this interview a little bit differently from how I do other interviews and that is to, to make sure we put on the table a few things. We went to the same K-12 through private school in uh, Titton Falls, New Jersey, the Randy School. I've known you, I, I was trying to figure out how many years. Is it 40? Is it more than 40? I think, I think 40, yeah, to be, yeah, I think it's 40 exactly. 40 years. So we've been friends for 40 years. You, you've been my brother's best friend uh, since like childhood. 40 years. Yeah. <laughs> you started, you started, we're going to talk about some of this background before we get to the big project that you're undertaking. But you and my brother started a number of businesses together, including diapers.com. Uh, you have been an investor in CAFE, so we have a lot of entanglements. <laughs> We've been friends for a long time. And I've uh, I've watched your growth and success with, with a lot of pride, my friend. So it's, it's a pleasure to have you on. I have as well, Preet. Did you, um... Now, we went to this weird high school, which is, which is very, very good. So no offense to the people who are going there now, but it was a little bit of a throwback. You didn't love high school, did you? I did not, no. I, I didn't love school, to be honest. Why is that? Because, you know, as we'll, as we'll discover, maybe <laughs> when we have more of this conversation, I've always, you're basically a human computer. <laughs> so you didn't even like math? I mean, I,
1: sure, I liked math, but not. I, I just didn't like. There was too many rules and guardrails. You know, you weren't able to be creative and think about unique solutions. You had to show your work, even if you found a new way to do and solve a problem. It didn't count or matter. Like, yeah, I, I didn't. I didn't enjoy it. It was very frustrating. You're a bit of a jock, right? I was. I was. I did love sports. You ran track, right? I did. I did. Started the track team. As a matter of fact. You started the track team? Yeah,
0: there was no track team there. The Panthers? Yeah, that's it. One way that you've been described, which I think is accurate, serial entrepreneur. Is that fair? Definitely, yeah. You started a company with my brother after being in finance for a while called The Pit that you, that you sold to Tops. And then as I always tell the story, because it's interesting to people, you then started something with my brother a number of years ago called 1 800 Diapers, <laughs> which was a play on what was it, 1 800 Flowers? Yeah. <laughs> where, where you, you know, before the internet, you would call that number, you get flowers delivered. I think there was also exactly. yep. one, hundred <laughs> one, 1 800 Mattress. Exactly. Yep. 100 Contacts. 1 800 Contacts, 1 whatever. <laughs> and I love telling the story because it's not that well known about how when I was US Attorney, Vinny called me up, my brother. um, And he said, I'm starting this new company, and it was to sell diapers on the internet. And and I will say to the crowd, you know, so imagine how my parents felt when when my brother, and this includes you, went overnight (laughs) from being the general counsel of a publicly traded company, Topps, to selling diapers on the internet (laughs) under the slogan, and this is true, we're number one in number two. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and that always brings the house down and people <laughs> laugh and I say, yeah, well, that's 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 right, you're laughing. My brother laughed too when he sold the company to Amazon for $545 million. <laughs> 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 How the hell did that happen?
1: Well, it's funny, just funny story too. Like, when I moved to Mountain Lakes, New Jersey with my family at the time uh, back in, this was 2006 and my neighbor tells a story about the first time he met me, and uh, he says, "Oh yeah uh, well, it's great. welcome to the neighborhood. Uh, what do you do and i said uh I'm in the uh, diaper business i sell sell diapers over the internet, and he said that <laughs> night he
0: went back and told his wife don't don't get too friendly with them. I don't think they'll be here that long <laughs> <laughs> well because it sounds it sounds crazy it sounds and, and you quickly went from one end the diapers to diapers.com. but obviously, for people who are not in the know, it was a a play for a population of consumers in the country, moms, particularly young moms, who you thought you could sell a lot of stuff to. So you ended up starting a, num- a number of other websites operating under the company named Quitsy. Can you tell us about what some of the other ones were and then how it got successful?
1: Yeah, I, I guess basically when we started, nobody was selling diapers over the internet, even though they're bulky. You don't really like going to the store to pick them up and bring them home. And it was sort of a commodity. You didn't need to see it or touch it, feel it to, to know what you were getting. And so it seemed perfect for the internet. But when we told people about this idea, especially people in in the actual market for diapers, they said it's never going to work because they're a lost leader for brick-and-mortar companies like Walmart and Target, and now you have to pay for shipping. It's just not going to be economical. And I think what we thought at the time in the thesis was, well, if Walmart and Target are using these products as loss leaders and not making any money on them, there's a reason because they drive traffic to the store to sell everything else. And we thought, well, online um, selling everything else is a lot more than what you could sell in a store. So there's a lot more margin. So we theoretically should be able to sell the diapers for even a bigger loss leader, you know, lose even more money because we could sell more products to people if we were able to build that relationship. And that was the original thesis going in, turned proved, you know, proved to be correct. Uh, we did build incredible relationships with with busy parents, and we were able to sell them everything else they needed for their baby, including eventually things they needed for their pets. We launched a site called Wag.com. We launched a website called soap.com, which was basically an online drugstore, and yo-yo.com, which was an online toy store. And we basically we were in 10 different verticals, um, selling parents stuff in every category. Uh, casa.com was a home site. And so the, the strategy was was proving out,
0: but uh, then, then we sold to Amazon. What's funny is, you know, when I would tell people this, people in retrospect think, oh, you know, I wish I had thought of that. As if it was about the idea alone and not about the execution. Does that irritate you when people say stuff like that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> as if as if you would have built from scratch. Exactly. A lot a lot of people had the idea. A half billion dollar company simply by having the idea, oh, let's sell diapers on the internet.
1: Right. It was it definitely wasn't about the idea. And I often tell people, it really is never about the idea. I think any idea could really work and turn into a meaningful business if it's a if it's a big enough market. And uh, it was about the execution. And it was about more than execution, it was really about risk taking. So Vinny and I uh, we had to basically,
0: we weren't able to buy diapers direct from Procter Gamble and Kimberly Clark. Because you didn't have the relationship with the manufacturers, you had to buy them from like a store like BJ's. Yep. The wholesale club. Or or Costco. Exactly. And I went once with my dad. <laughs> you remember this, right? I went with my dad. Yeah, I remember this, yeah. And and, my, and he had more credit <laughs> at the time than you guys did. And he literally goes into the BJ's some years ago and he buys $83,000 worth of diapers for your website to read. I remember the, the, the woman who, who was working at the time and took the order and looked at my desk. Can I, can I get you a hot dog or something? <laughs> He's like, no, I'm, I'm good. Thank you.
1: Remember he was reading through the, Vinny always does the, uh, when he was reading, reading through the
0: receipt and he was going through with his <laughs> accent. <laughs> that was cracked me up every time. How do you think about risk when you enter, uh, a new market or think of a new enterprise? How do I think about it? Yeah. Well, because this is going to be relevant to talking about the city. Yeah, I don't really think about, I don't really
1: think about, if you define risk as sort of probability of success, I don't really think about that in isolation like I think many people do. Um, certainly at big companies, it's that's exactly the way they think about it and why it stunts, you know, taking big swings because, if Something has a low probability of success, they immediately write it off. I think entrepreneurs, and this is what differentiates entrepreneurs from everyone else, is when you see a low probability of success, you don't necessarily write it off. You ask, well, how big's the upside if it does work? And if the upside is outsized relative to the probability, then it's a shot worth taking. So if you have a 20% chance of something working, most people would say, you know what? I, I don't want to fail eighty percent of the time. I'm no thank you, but I say wait. Twenty percent chance of what? Like what's the upside? Oh, it's a thousand x. Well, that I'll do <laughs> because if that doesn't work, I'll find another opportunity has a twenty percent chance of success with a thousand x. And eventually, I'm going to hit one of these things. Um, you know, maybe not. Maybe you know, maybe uh, you never hit the twenty percent. But that's entrepreneurship. Is you see that. And you go for it and you put everything you've got into something that is most likely not going to work. Give it the best chances it can by, you know, working hard and putting everything you possibly can into it. But doesn't mean it's going to work.
0: So you started diapers.com. That was a success. You were bought by Amazon. You worked there for a while. Then you left. Then you started another even more improbable thing, a direct competitive website to Amazon called Jet.com, which was also very successful, which you sold to Walmart for $3.3 billion. At the beginning of either of those enterprises, what did you think the likelihood of success was? Was it 20%? Lower? Higher? I think, I mean, you, when you're an entrepreneur, you don't think about
1: it not working. You go all in and you have to like operate under the assumption it's going to work. But if you looked at the objective probability of it working and just were an odds maker... I think you'd probably have to say diapers was 20% and JET was probably not much more either. Um, maybe you could say access to capital at JET. We
0: had more access to capital, so maybe it was 30 or So likely it was higher. Now, now when you have a track record of success, does it not become easier for, for people to believe in you and for you to believe in yourself?
1: I think it does. I, I talk about this framework that I operate by as an entrepreneur called VCP, Vision capital people. And I think you need all three ingredients. And if you get them right, magical things happen. And when you have a successful startup behind you, the C and P, capital and people, you have an advantage. So certainly had an advantage raising capital after success with diapers.com. And, you know, equally with people, you know, people like you said, believing in you, you're able to to go out and hire the very best talent. And uh, that, you know, if you have the best people and you have capital and you have a really big, clear vision, you have a good, uh, you know,
0: good chance that things will work out. Can we talk about one more improbable thing? (laughs) It's one of my favorite stories before we talk about your city project. And I think people find this hard to believe. You at one point qualified for the national bobsled team. How the hell did that happen? You're, you're, you're working in the World Trade Center some years ago yep. before you started becoming a serial entrepreneur. My memory is, because I remember hearing about it at the time, you're in your business suit. You're walking out to get lunch or something. And what do you see?
1: Yeah. So the uh, U.S. Olympic bobsled team was going city to city, spending a week in each city, trying to raise awareness for U.S. bobsled, raise money. And they had set up a track down at the World Financial Center. And they were basically just saying, hey, I don't know how much it was, like 10 bucks, $20, whatever, and push the sled and they'll time you. Um, And it was just for fun. And they were there for a week. And as one of the carrot there, they said, you know, and if you had the fastest time during the week, we'll invite you up to Lake Placid and you can, you know, take this other test to see if you could actually qualify to train up there and learn how to be a bobsledder. So I, um, I saw Wait, so that. Have you,
0: had you ever bobsledded before?
1: No, I never bobsledded. I was, I ran track at, at college, in college.
0: So you're in your business suit, you're living the building. You see, you see the bobsled track and you say to yourself, what the hell? I'll give it a shot. Is that fair?
1: Yeah. I took my jacket and tie off. I, I, I had sneakers cause I was going to the gym. So I went back, got my sneakers, came back. So I had basically, you know, still pants and a, in a shirt and sneakers on and, uh, yeah, proceeded to to push the sled down the track, and I remember them thinking it was fast time, it was impressive to them, whatever, and I was like, oh, okay, that's, that was kind of fun, that was cool, they think, it, they think it was a fast time, and then, like, I don't know, a week later, I get a call, this is so-and-so from the U.S. National Bobsled team, we just wanted to tell you <laughs> That uh, you, in fact, had the fastest time during the week. And we did say that you'd get an invite. <laughs> right. So we're inviting you to Lake Placid. <laughs> and um, they said you could come up to Lake Placid and take this test. And if you happen to pass the test, you'd need to stay up here for a month to learn how to bobsled. And then you would uh, we'd have the time trials to see if you make the U.S. national team. And, uh so I took a month off from work. That's cr- that's so crazy. That's, that's, that's
0: so insane. Yeah. So you took a month off, and then how'd you do?
1: Yeah, so I went up there, and then they had this test. It was like speed, jumping, strength, all these tests, and you had to score over 700 points to stay there for the month. And uh, I don't know, maybe like 30 people passed, and I was one of them. And so I stood up there for a month, lived up there in Lake Placid, and basically— trained every day. And then at the end of the month, there was the time trials and you had to finish in the top 13 to make the U S national team. And, uh, you know, I, I was like 30th or something like in the, you know, I was towards the bottom on, on sort of the, the testing metrics. So I just assumed I wasn't going to be in the top 13, but I gave it a shot and finished 13th. And so oh. <laughs> now they said, all right, well, welcome to the U S national bobsled team. And we're going to be traveling around the world and we're going to Germany and we're going here and there. And two
0: years is the Olympics. And I was like, I remember at the time it's like my best friend from high school, Jessica would say, have you heard the latest with Mark? Like, okay. So then finish the story. Cause got to get to your city.
1: Yeah, no. So, and then, so it was, that's it. I, I had to make a decision. Did I want to travel over the world for two years before the Olympics or, and quit my job? Or I was, you know, a couple of years into my career and I decided I wasn't gonna quit for two years to do it. And I
0: stuck with banking and that was the whole story. It was- So so that's just, it just continues to get, it's just crazier and crazier. You On a lark, you take off your tie and jacket that leads you down a path where you actually qualify for the national bobsled team. You have a shot at being in the Olympics, representing the United States of America (laughs) in the Olympics. And having done all that, you're like, nah, I'm gonna stick with banking. And it seems silly now, but uh, no (laughs) regrets. So you and I have spent uh, a lot of time over the last four and a half, five years talking about this idea you have that some people think is terrific. Some people think is outlandish. You yourself have said, you don't know what the likelihood of success is. We have a baseline of 20% that you think makes something worthwhile to try if it's you know, bold and aggressive and potentially world-changing. So let's talk about this city that you have imagined, uh, Telosa. My first question is, Given the resources and means that you have, how much you care about society and, you know, urban life, why not put that, why not put those resources to bear on actual cities? You live in Manhattan, in uh, New York City, the best city in the world, in my mind, and I think you enjoy it. Why not advocate for improvements and reforms in existing cities rather than undertake something so massive and difficult- by creating a new city? What's going on there?
1: Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think the best way to impact existing cities is to show how it could be done. And I think doing it with a clean slate from scratch enables you to do things that existing cities wouldn't even know are possible. And if you proposed it to an existing city, they'd be hard pressed to do it because of the investments they've already made in the existing infrastructure and the ways of, of operating that it would be too much of a risk. But if you saw it working and the benefits, you'd be able to do the cost-benefit analysis and I think more likely to do it. And so not impacting one city, but impacting all cities. And so that that's one thing. The other thing is that this was more than just building a city. It was really sort of proving a new model for society, a new economic model. So I think, you know, like like many of us, uh, we're just really frustrated with, how divided this country has become and how perplexed it is to see, despite all the material progress we've made in this country, why there are still so many people just barely getting by. And one of the things that occurred to me was, you know, I think, I think capitalism is, is, a, is a great economic model, but it certainly has its flaws. And, you know, there were flaws that have been exposed over time. The best example is really monopolies. Monopolies don't work in a capitalistic economic system. And it wasn't until antitrust laws that really the workers protected from that. And if you go back in time when there weren't antitrust laws, workers were and rights were were abused. And that needed that hole needed to be plugged. I think after doing research and reading about you know, the current system and, and why it's still flawed. I came across this book called Progress in Poverty by an economist called Henry George back in the late 19th century who proved through economic theory. And I, I you know, believe it that the real problem is that land ownership is essentially a monopoly that's not uh, regulated in any, way, in any way. So there's a finite amount of land and if you own a piece of land you basically have a, a sort of micro monopoly and can and can charge and profit in a way that will always make it the case that there's a class of people barely willing to to work. And he proves it in economic theory, and I, we don't have time to get into it. But, uh, but I definitely bought into it, and then got me thinking down this path of well, what if things were different? What if the land wasn't just you know given to people that put a stake in the ground and said, this is, the, yeah, this is my 160 acres. And that land was, was then never to be claimed again by anyone else because there's a finite amount of it. I said, what if you started from scratch and you took land that was worthless and you had the land bought by, rather than give it away to individuals, was, was given to or bought by a community foundation whose sole mission was to help create and build a city over that land so that the land would appreciate to such an extent that the land would be very valuable and the uh, foundation would sell the land and create an endowment. And that endowment would be used to provide advanced social
0: services like health care, education, um, jobs training, affordable housing. To such a degree that you wouldn't need a tax base in your theory or to supplement the tax base? To
1: supplement the tax base, you wouldn't certainly need to increase taxes to have the most amazing social services. So you'd have, you know, uh, equal opportunity, education, healthcare, housing, job training, like without having to increase
0: taxes. So it's it's
1: sort of the best of both worlds. Is that kind of like an
0: urban sovereign wealth fund?
1: It basically is. It basically is. And the wealth is created through the rapid appreciation of land that happens when communities are formed and tax dollars are invested in infrastructure. So it, it stands to reason that the, the people that created the communities that whose the, their tax dollars are invested in bridges and roads and tunnels and things that all the, the appreciation of the land caused by that should come back to the, the citizens that, that made it. So, and it's, it's, uh, it's not socialism or, or anything like that. The land is bought fair and square by community foundation when it's worthless. And then when it's worth something, the foundation sells it off. So there, there's nothing, it's not a government owned sort of thing. Uh, it literally is like, you can imagine on a small scale, a group of people agreeing that uh, we're going to create, you know, value in the land that we uh, create a community around. And when we create that value, we'll all share in it. And that that's essentially, uh, what What would happen if a community foundation bought desert uh, land in a desert and helped bring a city of five million people there
0: is there a, is there a catch twenty two there in the sense that because it 's you and if people thought well there's going to be a lot of value in this in this land going forward because we believe in the enterprise so we think it's a lot more than twenty percent with with the sellers of the land because you have to buy land from someone. So let's say you found a patch of land in, in Nevada. Is there a concern on your hand, on your part as a, as a pragmatic and practical matter that a seller of that land would raise the price higher up because they think you'll succeed and there'll be a lot of value later? I think that is definitely a concern. There is a lot- So you want of- to
1: downplay the prospects for success <laughs> a little <laughs>
0: bit for the initial land purchase. Or downplay
1: who's buying the land. Like, you know, I think Disney did that successfully at the time. I think people did that all the time. We'll buy, buy land, you know, buy up land without disclosing the buyer so that, yeah, it doesn't
0: increase the value before the land's acquired. So, so that's one practical thing. You know, are are people surprised because this is, uh, this idea has been germinating for a long time with you. We've been talking about it for five years, just, just um, informally. The idea was on the cover of Bloomberg Business Week magazine, a few weeks ago are people surprised when they learn that the idea was born in your head to address income inequality is that weird to people
1: um, I don't know it depends on who it is everyone has a different opinion I think but I, I've really yet to run into anyone that has that's objecting to the to the idea that we'd be able to offer these incredible benefits to the to the citizens without increasing taxes I think I think the previous thinking is if you want to have the world's best social services, you need to pay for it somehow. And that is going to be from, from increasing taxes. And that's where there's a divide. I think if we find a solution where we could not have to increase taxes at all and have these amazing social services, I think most people are bought into it. The other thing that is a real focus here is to, unlike many other cities being built, they feel more like real estate projects where people aren't at the center or they're, you know, technology sort of uh, showcases, you know, like Google tried to do uh, or is is happening outside of this country. But the idea that if we focus on people, put people at the center and start with this set of values, like, we have three values, open, fair, and inclusive. We want to be the most open, the most fair, the most inclusive city in the world. And that's what, that's what drives us. And the mission is to create a more equitable and sustainable future. So yeah, we want it to be more equitable through this you know, idea that, that I just said, but also want it to be the most sustainable city in the world. And there are a lot of things that we've learned over time that we could apply now that could make cities more sustainable. The city will be 100%
0: renewable energy, for example. So, 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 all the, all these things sound great, but one of the, the threads of conversation you and I have had, and I know you care about is when you plan a city, it can become antiseptic and you worry that it becomes, you know, a city of monorails that have a lot of gadgets and high tech, but it doesn't have soul. Yeah. The charm or grit. And I'm going to, you, you said it, I'm going to quote from you. You have said about this project, quote, how does a city have a soul? It's not about buildings and roads, it's about the values and the city standing for something. We don't know what that is yet, but we want to find out, end quote. If you, billionaire Mark Laurie, and other folks plan it and think about every detail of the city center as an initial matter and think about all the sustainable things you're gonna do, housing, transportation, museums, schools, and everything else, and we'll get to some of those, how do you build a city that has vibrancy and a soul if it's pre-planned. Yeah, I
1: think it has to be, I mean, we think about this a lot. And if the city doesn't work the way we all dream it can, it'll probably be because it doesn't have soul. And so that's obviously a, a really important, or or it won't be diverse. You know, it'll be some homogeneous group that, you know, goes out there first and and then it just never really turns into something that oh, we're really super proud of. So I think on the seeding of the city, and this is controversial in its own right, you know, trying to get the first 50,000 people that move there to be as diverse a group as possible across race, religion, profession, income level, to give it the best chance of organically growing from that point forward. You've got to get that right.
0: because. Yeah. It, so how do you prevent it from being…
1: You know, very homogeneous. I know. This first 50,000 people, unfortunately, the only way, the solution we can come up with, and if somebody has a better solution, we're open to it, would be to sort of do it and create it like a university class where you'd literally have applications and you'd, you'd build a, a class of citizens that represent the first 50,000 and try to do it in the most diverse way possible to give it the best possible chance of organically growing. Because it wouldn't be after the first 50,000, you can't continue to, it's not a private city, it's an open public city. So you'll have one shot to sort of do this. And I think it's important we get the right people in the room, helping to ensure that that first 50,000 is diverse, and also the, the type of people that are encouraging organic growth from there. And, you know, in terms of building of the city itself, we, we can't have one single architect, for example, it needs to be Um, I mean, there'll be a master planner, but we'll need to engage the best and brightest minds and creative minds to think about, you know, different parts of the city and and making sure that there's creative diversity as well. The the worst would be if the city is is very, um, has a very similar like look throughout it, that I think that we'd be missing soul. If it wasn't organically grown, our intention is to bring, you know, in the beginning as sort of a destination is to potentially talking about this, making music and entertainment sort of a, a focal centerpiece to bring creative minds and creative talent into the city early, because I do think it will take, you know, creative people to expand the city in ways that give it soul and, and vibrancy. But there are things that we can do also that we've learned, you know, with nature you know, to infuse that into the city, to make it walkable, bikeable, to have the ability of people to work, live, play, all within uh, sort of a five-minute walk? Will there be cars in the city? So the way we're thinking about it now, because of the, the benefits of going fully autonomous in terms of vehicles, we'll probably head down that route where there won't be any Non-autonomous vehicles, at least in the in the center of the city. It would all be autonomous, which would allow you to have narrower roads, fewer roads, no street lights and street signs. It'd be a lot safer. So lots of advantages. It'd be, you know, all, all the, the vehicles would be electric, so it'd be better for the environment as well. But the safety is a big thing. It's more efficient. And you have fewer roads and fewer cars. So that's something that is very possible today. The only reason why autonomous vehicles aren't more mainstream is because combining autonomous vehicles with, you know, normal cars just doesn't work. It's it's the the complexities are it's just incredibly challenging and difficult.
0: We'll be right back with more of my conversation with Mark Laurie after this.
2: Just go to ConstantContact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. ConstantContact.com. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
0: Can we talk about the name for a second? Sure. Which I should have done at the beginning. (laughs) So I know from our discussions... That telosa, and also from my study of political philosophy in college, comes from Aristotle's term telos, which means purpose or end or or the highest purpose. My question to you is: Have you thought about in the last week changing the name to Meta? Meta,
1: yeah. I mean, it's it's funny that there, there there will be, uh, and we're talking about this a lot. Likely a sort of metaverse of. Of Tolosa that's built simultaneously.
0: This is new. Yeah, this is... Breaking news. You're hearing it right here, folks, for the first time. It is new.
1: And we've got this feedback. You know, we're very open to feedback, and we've got this feedback from quite a number
0: of people. So we're we're now exploring that. By the way, less people think this is some grand hypothetical, notwithstanding the amazing millions of challenges that you would face in succeeding on this, you're years into this project. You have spent millions of dollars of your own money, am I right? That's correct, yeah. You have actually engaged a chief architect. Could you, could you tell us about what concrete things
1: have happened? Yeah, we've engaged the architect firm Big, uh, BRK, is the the founder. And and yeah, we've been working with them for quite some time now to develop the master plan. And we've, we've got it on the on the Telosa website, com. You can see imagery. We've got a lot more imagery that's not up there yet that should be coming up soon. But yeah, we've spent a lot of time thinking about the layout of the city. We've spent a lot of time thinking about water and water rights, about how to you know, make the city 100% renewable energy, and how much solar and wind would we need, and where would we ideally be located to be able to pull that off. Um, we've looked into you know, autonomous vehicles, EVTOLs, essentially you know passenger drones, and how they would play into the city, vertical farming in, in lots of different areas. And um, there's so much more to, to unpack, but we've got, you know, experts and teams in lots of areas looking at these different problems.
0: So where's it? People keep asking me first, where is it going to be?
1: And you don't know that yet. Yeah, we don't know that yet. I think that 2022, that's really the plan is to build out sort of uh, what we're calling the Junto group, sort of this, this board of governors where experts in, in each area come together to help answer a lot of these really tough questions, and at the same time talking to governors and meeting with states to try to figure out where the best location is, one where where it's doable and where we can get the land. So one is getting the land. Two is okay, you have
0: the land, but can you build a city of five million people? And and uh, but what's the time? What's the time frame over which you expect the city to grow that big?
1: So two thousand. We're targeting two thousand thirty is when the first 50,000 people move in. So you'd have you know, the center core of the city built out and enough to, to house 50,000 people and, and you know, work and uh, have a high quality of life. And then we grow there over the next decade from 50 to a million, and then from a million to 5 million over the following decade. So it's really like a, a 30 years from today, a city of 5 million people. That's, I think, the most realistic
0: uh, goal at this point. You know this has been tried before. There are a lot of instances, and you and I have talked about this also. And what's interesting is you you think of these kinds of planned cities being a feature of authoritarian governments and tried in China, and it often fails. What's the reason for the failure of other projects to build cities from scratch? I don't think from
1: our research and what we've looked at, they're really starting with people at the center and focused on how to offer people a higher quality of life, you know, education, jobs, and you know, a place where you, you feel like you'd want to raise a family. Like I, I think a lot of those cities that are pre-planned and built, there's definitely lacking a soul. There's not as much uh, it's not the kind of place that you'd be excited to raise a family. There's just a lot of you know, skyscraper type buildings, a lot of technology, a lot of cement, the way we're designing this is it's going to feel great. Like it's going to have a really good feeling when you come to Telosa, the amount of, of nature and how nature is infused in, in everything. And there won't be skyscrapers. The, the buildings will be, with few exceptions, will be, will be capped. The will be a major focus on on culture, arts, entertainment, restaurants, things, all the things that make, you know, things that you love about the city you live in and we're gonna put a major focus on that early and then and then the other thing is is a lot of times there's a chicken and egg thing with with people not wanting to go there because other people aren't there and the people that do go there are a certain kind of people that doesn't resonate so I do think this yeah
0: that was my worry like it's gonna be a self-screened group of a certain kind which can work against diversity no and this
1: is why basically nobody moves in until the 50,000 people have been selected that the people are applying selected. Okay, here's the 50,000 people. Now these 50,000 people, just like, you know, opening, you know, day at university, 50,000 people move in over the course of a six week period. So nobody's there. And then six weeks later, 50,000 people are there
0: and people will move in in waves, on day one, how are people going to work? Yeah, or I guess but, maybe now everyone can work on Zoom. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> no, but there, that's a, that's
1: another whole part of the thinking. A lot of the the original people will be entrepreneurs that aspire to build tech companies that could be located anywhere, and that sounds very very white and male. Well, it doesn't have to be. No, I mean it wouldn't be. If, if the first fifty thousand people are going to be diverse across race, religion, income level there'll be doctors, there'll be teachers, there'll be lawyers, there'll be uh, construction workers, there'll be people running and operating restaurants, small business, city workers, like it'll be a, you know, day one, the 50,000 people will have to have jobs across every sector that uh, matters in a city. So, and do we know 50,000, by the way, is the right number? Could it be 30,000? Could it be 100,000? We sort of, Think back in the envelope 50s, right? But whatever it takes to basically have that diversity out of the gate and to cover all the professions that are needed to manage and run a fully functioning, vibrant city, even if it's small.
0: I mean, is this the biggest issue that people raise how you seed the city in the first place? Because it's gonna be human beings. It's not gonna be done by algorithm, presumably, right? Yeah, human beings, right. Human beings and human beings have biases, yep. you know, explicit and implicit. It'll have to be
1: the diver- the diversity of the team that actually does the selection is probably more important than even the people that are selected. So we're engaging with some of the best you know, diversity inclusion minds in the world to help us think through this problem about who should you know, be the team of people that actually go through the selection process to try and make sure it is fair and inclusive, um, again, our values are, are fair, open, and inclusive. And we, we need to live those values in a way that no other city in the world does or ever has lived.
0: Can we talk about education? Because that's a very important part of of any community. How's education going to be financed? Well, again, it would be, you know. Not not property taxes? No, it would, it would be property
1: taxes that would fund education up to the point that it is funded today.
0: But then cool, we would take. Can, the, can, I, can I push back? And I, yeah, you know, I think I think a lot I've always been of the view, it's a very odd thing to fund public education through property taxes because some people own land, some people don't own land. This is the problem that's at the base of your your strategy here. And it works certain kinds of unfairnesses. Oh, totally
1: agree. Sorry, sorry, Pete, Let me just let me just explain because I, I wasn't clear. When I said property taxes. I didn't mean and I agree with you 100%. It wouldn't mean local property taxes fund local schools. So if you're in Mount Lakes, New Jersey, the the property taxes of the Mountain Lakes homeowners fund the Mount Lakes school system. That does not that is not
0: fair at all. Even people who don't live in in houses and and even if you don't have children, so it works in both directions. Yes. Based on your ownership of land, you pay or don't pay for local education. So how would Telosa be different?
1: So these are things that still need to be worked through that at the highest level, though, the taxes that you currently pay, like collectively, if you live in any city, you you pay taxes. Those taxes offer public education system. That system we know is lacking. It's flawed in in many respects because there's not enough financing to, to bring in the very best teachers. So, in Telosa, because we would have this endowment that would, would have, at the end of the day, $50 billion a year to spend, a big chunk of that $50 billion would go into education. That would supplement the education system as we know it today to be able to you know, have much better teachers and much better facilities. Like it, w- it would be a much better education system. And everyone in Tolosa would have equal access to that system. It wouldn't be different in different parts, wealthier parts of Tolosa or less wealthy parts wouldn't have a different
0: education system. Well, would you, would you ban private schools? What if somebody, so what is so, among the 50,000, an entrepreneur there said, I want to start a private school. That's okay. Right.
1: I think it's a great question. I think, you know, I mean, just thinking about it now, that's, that, that's a great question to like put out to the, to the group of the Gento group to talk through. I don't see any reason why you, you we're trying to be open and, and fair. So if somebody had an idea to, to do and wanted to create a private school because they felt that the public system was lacking, I mean, this public system we think would be incredible given the amount of resources. But certainly, if somebody wanted to build a school, I don't see any reason why. But I'm saying that without having discussed that with the, the broader diverse team. I think with all these questions, Preet, it takes many discussions to, to make sure that you're not making a decision in one way that has unintentional consequences in in another way. So, but
0: that, that would be my, my knee jerk reaction would be sure. It's really hard. Every time, every time I think about, yeah, every time we talk about this, I, I get, uh, you know, my mind spins and how complicated all this is. Would would this city have a mayor like most cities? Yep. It would be run just like any, any other city. Um, If you think about it, it's, it's,
1: it's just like if New York City tomorrow, a community endowment or foundation popped up that had $50 billion a year to spend to improve the lives of the citizens that live there. Then that foundation would sort of work with the government and say, hey, I've, I've got $50 billion to donate this year. Um, we'd like to donate in, and make the education system better. We'd like to improve the hospitals. We'd like to you know, make housing more affordable. Wait, where, where does the $50 billion come from again? The appreciation of the land, the way we've calculated it, would be worth about a trillion dollars when sold. And so if you sell the land for a trillion dollars, you create a trillion dollar endowment, Telosa Endowment Fund. And that fund would then be invested in a diversified asset portfolio that generates 5% a year, which is 50 billion. Similar to the way university endowment generates cash every year
0: to to put back into the university. But so when the economy crashes because it happens from time to time, does Telosa suffer disproportionately because of its reliance on investment? No, because the
1: just like, in a, like a university endowment or something, the expected returns, the way it was invested in, and would be invested in a very diverse way, might be 7% a year, but you'd only spend 5%. So you'd have like sort of a 2% cushion. That 2% kind of stays there and grows each year for a rainy day when the returns are negative 7% and you've got the 2% each year that you were over five that you saved up to cover. It's like balances out. That's, that's basically the way, you know, any endowment works like university endowments would, would have the same issue. Uh, you have to make sure it's a diverse investment portfolio and uh, you know, you want to have assets that are uncorrelated. So if some go down in a really bad situation, others do well in a bad situation, a bad economy, for example. So, yeah, that's that's part of the investment management piece of it.
0: I think I know the answer to this. More on, on municipal government, do you commit to the city having nonpartisan elections? Do you mean, yeah, do you mean for the community foundation? No, I mean for the mayor of the city. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some cities like New York City, there's the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, and, and a variety of other parties as well. But some places... It's a nonpartisan election. It's not, you know, run on a party line. It's just you just run, and whoever gets the most votes becomes, you know, the leader of the city. Have you given thought to how that should be conducted?
1: We haven't at all. I mean, that's that's an area that we haven't really talked about at all.
0: I, I mean, I, I'm going to advocate for I'm going <laughs> to advocate for nonpartisan elections and rank choice voting. So when you when you meet, when you meet with your committee to talk about those kinds of things. <laughs> I think, I think the partisan politics in urban areas where so much is about just competence and execution and cleaning the snow and getting the, the buses to operate and all of that should be non-ideological, non-partisan. So I, I commend that thought to you. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. What's, what's the argument you're going to make to governors of states and state legislatures as to why they want to be helpful and facilitate the establishment of a... New city in their state.
1: I think because if this works the way we think it can, it could set a new, a new model for society that could can make America better. That there are so much, all the cities that we already have can learn from, and even if this didn't work, there would still be a ton to learn. Um, so, in, in the best case scenario, there's an incredible amount of pride for the state to say that 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 the city. Is a city where it sets a new standard for urban living. You know, offering a higher quality of life, more sustainable, more equitable. I think it's just a source of pride, and what would go down in, in history as as being a, I don't know, a, a place for people, cities, countries to learn from. There's an incredible amount of pride. I would think to have that be happen at the time that. You know, a governor is is in the you know is, is a governor. I mean, I I, I would I, w- I certainly would want that to happen on my watch if I were if I were there. Because if it doesn't work, there's still so much to learn. I, I don't think there's really a scenario with this. You know, it's not good for America long term. I, I think there needs to be more people just taking shots, innovating, taking risk, and trying to make
0: the country better. I'm gonna do a very quick lightning round because I know you got to go. Favorite city other than Tolosa Outside of the country or inside? Inside the country. I'm going to have to say New York City. Well, that was an easy one. <laughs> What's more, So you recently bought or are going to have majority stake in the professional uh, basketball team, the Minnesota Timberwolves. What is more likely, the success of Tolosa or the Timberwolves having a successful season? <laughs> Timberwolves are looking good. It's, it's a we have a really good young
1: team. <laughs> Are they I'm excited about about the season in the future for sure.
0: How many hours sleep you get? Because I don't understand how you do all these enterprises in 24 hours. <laughs> I actually sleep pretty well. I, I just do a lot of thinking while I'm sleeping.
1: so I'm, I'm multitasking,
0: but while I, you're sleeping
1: <laughs> I wake up with, with ideas all the time. I get a good eight hours in every night. You do. It's important to get eight hours because it allows you to go nonstop for sixteen hours every day. I think that's the if you you can yeah get five hours and then you're you have got I guess an extra three hours, but you're just not nearly as effective. So I've always found like better to get get a full eight hours and then just go nonstop for sixteen.
0: I didn't know that. About, I assumed you slept three hours a night. <laughs> Mark Laurie, my friend of 40-plus years, congratulations on all your success. I wish you well with this new project that is very challenging, and I hope to keep talking to you about it. Thanks again. Thanks, Preet. So I want to end the show this week to highlight an email we got a few days ago from an avid listener. As you know, this past Tuesday was election day. Now it wasn't a presidential election or even a midterm election, but there were a lot of important local leaders on the ballot. And I was glad to see so many people at the polls in my home state, I voted, I hope you voted too. I know for a lot of folks, people in Virginia, uh, perhaps in New Jersey, that race hasn't been called yet, the governor's race, it was not a great day. And a friend of mine in Suffolk County, the DA also lost his race. But I wanna tell you more about this email. Turnout is important in any election. And it's hard for people when we don't have the day off. People have work and school and commitments. That's why Lisa K. Solomon, who wrote the email, an educator and designer in residence at Stanford University, wrote in to tell us about the hashtag All Vote No Play initiative. She wrote to us, quote, we don't get a lot of good news stories these days. So I wanted to share something very special that's quietly taking place across college campuses this election day called hashtag All Vote No Play Day. In some ways, All Vote No Play is a mixture of your recent episode with Ken Burns, talking about his new Muhammad Ali documentary, your conversation with Bina Venkatraman, and trying to prevent the negative scenario that Dr. Fiona Hill was talking about in your most recent episode. Well, first of all, Lisa, you're clearly paying attention to the show. Thanks for tuning in every week. She wrote further, quote, all vote, no play, as the brainchild of former Stanford basketball player and coach Eric Ravino who in 2020 socialized the idea that Election Day should be a day off from practice and play and a day on for civic engagement. Over 1,100 coaches signed a petition for 2020, and it was so popular that the NCAA created legislation to make it an annual mandate, end quote. That means that every year on Election Day, students will turn their focus to their communities and work towards becoming more engaged and passionate citizens. That's pretty freaking cool. Lisa told us about the coaches dedicated to engaging their students in civic education, and in many cases, the students inspired to take the lead, like sophomore Ryan Belk, tight end for the Yale Bulldogs. He hosted Bulldog Ballot Breakfast, Lisa wrote, where his teammates will watch Citizen University CEO Eric Liu's brilliant TED Talk on the joy of voting, and will hold a votes giving to talk about the personal side of voting. Ryan is also a survivor of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas school shooting and is trying to ignite and amplify the voices of the next generation. So it's incredible to see bipartisan initiatives like this gain momentum and attention in this country. Civic engagement is something I care very deeply about, and I hope you do too, and hopefully that's one of the reasons you listen to the show. Our democracy depends on it. So check out their mission and work at allvotenoplay.org. There you can find guides and resources for what they call civic drills. Whether you have 10 minutes or three hours to spend on civic education, you can make it count. And we'll host a votes giving to talk about the personal side of voting. So I want to thank Lisa K. Solomon for sharing this great initiative with us so that I could share it with all of you. And if you have any stories of inspiration that you'd like to share, I'd love to hear them. Send them to us at letters That's letters Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Mark Lorre. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669 669- 247-7338 That's 669-24-PREET Or you can send an email to letters com. Stay Tuned is presented by CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper The technical director is David Tattashore. The senior producers are Adam Waller and Matthew Billy And the CAFE team is David Kurlander, Sam Ozer staten Noah Azulay Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Chris Boylan, Sean Walsh, Chelsea Simmons, and Namita Shah. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.
2: More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot.